Hello, and thank you so much for joining us, Belkin Season 3 Growth Podcast, Under the Spotlight. Today, I have with me the VP of Sales for a company called Driveline. Driveline was founded in 1947. They provide powerful merchandising programs and insight that yield positive outcomes for manufacturers and retailers nationwide. Their reputation for delivering value and results to clients has made them the largest non-broker retail merchandising services agency in the nation with over 14,000 employees. Joining me today is their vice president of sales, Peter Scherer. Peter, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So first off, that's a, that's a mouthful, but tell me, you know, if I'm a layman and I'm, you're trying to explain to me and we're sitting across the bar from each other, what is driveline? What does driveline do? It is hard to explain if you're not part of the industry, right? And depending on your connection with retail as a consumer or as some provider of services, or if you work at retail, you'll have a different understanding. Essentially, we enable retailers and brands to execute, we'll call it labor-intensive initiatives in a shortened period to allow their strategic vision around presentation of products or store design, how they want a floor plan to exist in the store so that when a customer comes in, do they turn to the right, to the left, do they go straight, is it angled? So all of the kind of all of the aspects of retail that a consumer would tend to take for granted, some th- there's a lot of resources that go into making this happen. So we're just one small part of that equation, right? In some cases, we're a agent of the retailer themselves. So for retailer X is expanding and they've got 50 new stores opening this year. Somebody You've got general contractors that are building a building. They're laying cement, they're putting up drywall, they're painting, right? At some point that gets turned over to the merchandising and marketing teams of that retailer. So we we kind of step in at that point after the GC has done his work in some cases, and we will bring that store to life. So we'll unload truckloads and truckloads of fixtures and store decor and signage and all of the all the stuff inside of those four retail walls that makes it a store right and then we will assemble those components get them placed in the right place we'll set the shelves the pegs we'll set all the tags and shelf strips and then our merchandising team will merchandise those shelves so we support retailers construction initiatives, right? So whether it's a new store or remodels, we allow them to, you know, bring that store to their final vision. And we do this with our own people. So we'll send a team of, could be 10 people, 20 people, 50 people. And we could have that team in a store, depending on what the initiative and the square footage of the store, it could be for a week. It could be for 12 weeks. Interesting. Um, so we really run the gamut. And then once the store is open, there's always ongoing needs. Brands are constantly introducing new items to what they call a planogram or a section on the shelf. So you can't, let's say Colgate comes out with a couple of new flavors of toothpaste. How do those make their way to the shelf? How do they fit on a shelf that's already full? So there's constant resetting of every section in the store that needs to happen to allow for new items to come in for items that 
need to come out of the set. They need to leave the store. So stores, some retailers will execute this themselves using their own store employees, but other retailers will engage a third party like Driveline so that we can, if you take Walmart, for example, they've got 4,500 stores across the US. It's, if you look at one store by itself, there's a labor component. It might not be that overwhelming, but when you look at all 4,500 stores, that's a lot of labor. So a lot of retailers will say, well, I'm gonna utilize a third party like Driveline to execute the, let's call it the dental category reset across the entire chain. And I know they can knock it out in two weeks across the chain. Mm. And that's where we come in. So we support retailers in all these various ways. And then we support brands like let's say Procter & Gamble, they have a new skew of Tide coming out or they need some information gathering and they want us to go audit these particular stores or retailers. So we provide all these support services for brands where we can engage our very large pool of people to visit these retail locations to execute these types of initiatives. Some of them are marketing driven. Maybe they've got new signage they want going up on an end cap. Yeah. Maybe it's across multiple retailers, right? P&G may say, you know, we have a new marketing uh, message that we're putting out there for our new Tide Pods. And we need someone to install these in 50,000 different retail locations across the country. So we've got three weeks to do it. Who can do that? There's not a lot of people that can do that. So yeah. that's kind of a brief overview, but we support brands and we support retailers with labor intensive initiatives is really present. yeah this is interesting stuff so it's it sounds like it's almost a combination of labor but also creative in a way where like do you guys have autonomy where you can come into a retailer and say hey this is what should go on the end cap based on the market for instance they're opening two new locations in oklahoma and so they want to have their john deere toys on the end cap is that decided at your guys's level do you have input or is it decided more at the retailer level or is it decided at the brand level it's typically between the retailer and the brand. And there's okay. a lot that goes into that consideration. Presentation and obligatory placement programs in there. Sometimes it's a profit source or a source of revenue for a retailer because that's all very valuable space, right? If someone wants to be on an end cap, there's programs where, you know, these brands are paying a lot of money for primary placement within a store or something like that. So it's pretty rare that we would have input to that. Got it. We do have a, an analytics piece of the business where we can bring some analysis to both the retailer and the brand to say, look, we've evaluated your distribution across this network. And you can see fluctuation based on where in the store you might be situated for a given time. So we could provide useful data back to both retailers and brands, but typically we're coming in and decided what they want to do. Now they need to get it done. So that's what we're doing. Got it. Got it. No, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I'd seen, I was watching an, an episode of Shark Tank and it was, it was one of the most famous ones of this company called Scrub Daddy. They had come out with some new scrubbing apparatus for their dishes and then if it's cold water it's hard it's a hard scrub and then it transforms immediately if it's hot water to make it soft and the sharks were giving him feedback and they were like how are you planning on go to market and 
he's like, right now we're going up to market on our website, but we need to get into retailers and get it on the end cap. And the, one of the, the, one of two, maybe it was two of them immediately piped up and they were like, oh, that's expensive space. Like you can't just walk into a retailer and go put this on your end cap. It has to be drip driving a certain amount of revenue. And so, no, that's, I was curious about that. So basically you guys are, you guys provide a lot of value around a, a retailer's ability to have speed to market. If they're working within deadlines and they need to be able to execute and they only have so much bandwidth or so many resources to do it themselves, you guys can come in and you can bring your muscle and your team who's done this a thousand times, probably, maybe even more. And you guys, basically, it's like Novocaine. You give it time, it's going to work. Your team knows exactly what to do in order to help them get everything stood up so they can hit their grand opening. Yes. So we do that for new stores and remodels when they have grand openings and grand reopenings and things like that. But it's really throughout the year, right? So you're right. So seasonality I mean, too, like Christmas time, sorry to cut you off. Christmas time's coming up. They want to make a shift or they want to transfer products into different areas because it's fall and they need all of their harvest products to come out, things like that as well. Yeah, exactly. Most stores will have a seasonal aisle and seasonal sections of the store, but it's constant and it's all over the store, right? These retailers follow a pretty widely accepted principle with where each category with a product within the store gets reset certain times of the year, right? So you may have, you go into a drugstore like CVS or Rite Aid or Walgreens, and they've got a giant amount of, let's say, cosmetics. Yeah. You might have 20 brands that supply a cosmetic section in one of these chain drug stores. And twice a year, these brands are each introducing new items, right? They yeah. come up with a new, new lipstick, a new mascara, whatever it is, new nail polish. There's a lot of moving parts and pieces that need to be wrangled. And the retailer is really one component of that. If you think about the complexity of a reset, it's not like... You, you might have an end cap with three SKUs on it. That's pretty simple. You know, yeah. typically a store person can execute that, but it's very difficult if you've got a cosmetic section that's a hundred linear feet and you've got 20 brands, each one wanting their own, each has their own set of priorities, but someone's got to manage all of that and bring it together. It could take 70 to a hundred hours to reset oh. one store. So you might have a person team there for two days working eight hour days, which is pretty common in that category. But not only from our point of view, are we working with a retailer and saying, okay, we're going to schedule store A, or we might have 40 stores a day schedule over a month long period. And each of those 40 stores might take 70 to 80 hours. Now you're working with each of these 20 brands on the other side to make sure that you're giving them what they need and giving the retailer what they need. You mentioned it's, we've done it a lot, but that experience brings a lot to bear because it's not just putting a warm body into a store. That would be it. So you've got to have, you got to have people with experience, but you've got to set them up for success too, right? And that's, I think, one of the differentiators with Driveline versus a lot of other folks in our industry is how do you, what is all the preliminary work that needs to happen to ensure a successful outcome in these retail stores, right? And I think in your opening statement, it, we're able to enable retailers to achieve these successful outcomes with all these various initiatives. That doesn't start when people show up at the store. That starts two months prior when you're creating 
instruction manuals and training documents and reference materials and you're having training calls and so all of that goes into that and i think that's because we're 70 plus years old we've really evolved that project management that account management that client service engine that drives everything that happens at store level and it's easy to take all that for granted because it's not necessarily all of it isn't visible to the customer but they notice it when someone else comes in that doesn't have all of that because usually the results speak for themselves and, yeah. and frankly that's one of the reasons we've been able to grow over the years absolutely yeah now that's that was going to be some of my questions because because you're i think you're hitting the nail right on the head and a lot of times in sales especially with service-based sales where you're providing a service it's tough to quantify the direct impact that service will have. It's tough to say, well, our people are just better. And to try to quantify, how have you iterated over time? What are the differentiators? How can you help me understand why leveraging you is better than leveraging, you know, Acme retail solutions down the road? And so now I'm, I'm curious about that because it sounds like on a high level, it sounds like people that can do the work, people that can, but what does that entail? Like how, how much detail goes into planning the work and working the plan where you're able to really separate yourself from the competition and grow to such a size that you guys are at? Oh, like I said, it's, it's imperative. Without that, it's, you'll fail at store level. You've got to set the rep or the team that's in the store up for success. When they walk in that door, they've got to know exactly what is expected when they leave the store, right? In fact, you know, we do a lot of survey data collection and we collect digital photos and, and all of that that we pass on to the client. You know, you phrase these questions. At the end of the visit, did you achieve this, right? Because that's really what it's about. It's like, yeah, we can ask all the questions and understand what happened to you got to that point. But at the end of the day, what really matters is how was it when you left the store? Did you achieve mm. all these objectives? So, you know, it, communicating those objectives up front, clearly identifying it in a document that reps are accustomed to reading or accessing from their mobile device. And again, setting them up for success is the key. So how do you sell that when you're in the business development side and you're getting in front of clients? I mean... You know, a lot of it is you, you really are gaining their trust. If you have a new client that's not familiar with you and you want an opportunity to get in the door with that client and, and support them and grow your collective businesses, you need to be able to talk about all of these things, right? And all of the, the infrastructure that's on the other side of the line that they may not see and what goes into that. And then you can give some case studies on how that equates to a successful outcome. It's not always easy to justify I'd say for us, it's easier to identify positive differentiators because we do a lot of things differently, I think, from other companies. It's not the easiest thing to justify ROI. How do you put dollars to that, right? Right. For us, I guess one of the upsides is we're supporting these initiatives that are endemic to the, the categories and retail channels we support. They're going to build new stores. They're going to remodel. They have to do these category resets. They're always updating their marketing campaigns and their messaging. So a lot of the things we support are just part of the day-to-day -day business. When you think about what really 
differentiates any company. It's the results, right? It's the reliable, consistent results. So we like to talk about that. We talk about case studies. On the back end, how you get there is less important than the fact that you got there. You come in on time, you come in in budget, you deliver what you say. If there are exceptions or opportunities, you own that and you correct it. There's never any finger pointing, blaming. Look, if we drop the ball or missed the goal line somewhere, then we're going to go back and fix it. And that's, I think it sounds simple, right? It's every company should operate that way, but there's a lot of companies out there without that degree of integrity right. where you've got to own what you do. Yeah. And even if it winds up costing you money on the back end, it's going to help you build a relationship with a customer that you wouldn't otherwise be able to build. It's okay to make a mistake. We have technology that supports our business, but it's not like we're selling software, right? Mm -hmm. We're not a manufacturer. We're not stamping out widgets. And whether you order a hundred or a million, I just keep the machine running longer. Everything we do is the result of a human being in the store doing something and human beings on the back end. It's, there's nothing here that it's a machine. It doesn't always run perfectly. You set expectations. Hopefully you live up to those expectations. If you have an opportunity, you correct it. And honestly, sometimes that makes, it's like a broken arm. You know, an arm breaks, you put it in the cast. Once it's healed, it's stronger than it was before. A lot of times that works with a service company providing a service. If you don't deliver on a, on a promise, you own up to it, you're going to make it right and you make it right. And the relationship oftentimes is stronger for it. So that's, that's you know, that's how you communicate to customers what they can expect out of, out of you. Yeah, man, you are, you're dropping some some knowledge right now i'm i'm sitting over here like this guy's the real fucking deal like you got it like holy moly you've got me like almost mouth open here so all right so oh, let's wow. talk about this for a second um because because you're right i think you're spot on every company should operate like this but the reasons that you guys are setting yourself apart is because you actually do and with service with services it's so important not to over-promise and under-deliver, but it's also important to own those areas that you talked about, like where you've made a mistake. How do you scale a team to 14,000 people? And I saw that you guys added, um, not the lion's share, but you added like 4,000 additional employees in 2019. But how do you scale a team to this size and maintain that top-tier mindset where I can only imagine as one of the sales leaders that your team thinks like this too, and they all get it, but how do you do that? Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's, it, it is a bit of a differentiator for us and it is, it's an expensive investment in not culture, but really the infrastructure, but culture and infrastructure need to operate hand in hand, right? Because I know there's companies out there that's got 20,000 people, but there are 20,000 individuals that might report into three individuals. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of out there almost as independent contractors, right? Yeah. We've got a severe uh, field management infrastructure. So we've got over 130 district managers across the country. We've wow. got report up to 11, you know, regional managers that report up to divisional VPs and then VPs and then, you know, senior leadership level. So 
I think from a ratio perspective of field management and trainers and operators out there with lead level positions versus the, the pool of 14,000 hourly associates, it's, yeah. it's a really tight ratio versus, like I said, I know I've got competitors out there where they've got two field managers and they've got 20,000 people. Mm. A little different kind of business, but enough similarities where they would rather manage based on either reporting or customer feedback than actually being out in the field, working with the team. But when you talk about mindset, it, it starts at the top, right? It starts with the CEO and the COO and senior level executives with the company. And it's, it's part of your everyday internal communications, every call that takes place. It is about, you, you never lose sight of the, the mission. And that mission is delivering that customer satisfaction with the utmost integrity and owning, and owning what we do out there. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to get into all the mechanics of what it takes to manage a business this big because it's, it's intense. Sure. But, uh, you know, it's from a mindset and a culture development. You can't get lazy with that. You can't get lazy yeah. with culture. And even if you have one, you might have one region out of 11 where maybe you've got a break in that chain, right? And all of a sudden the culture, maybe in the Northeast has, you know, started to slip. That immediately shows up in the results of, are we... If I was supposed to have 50,000 hours of work in that region over the last two weeks, and I've only got 30,000 reported, that's probably, and that's indicative of a bigger problem, right? Could be that yeah. we've had fallout and we just have open territories where we don't have reps. But typically it's, it's at a higher level where how could we have allowed that to happen? And I think just the way we're structured, we're able to attack those opportunities at a market level rather than all of a sudden you turn around and wake up one day and you've lost kind of the true meaning of why we're in this business. So, yeah, yeah, probably not the straightest answer, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a great, it's a great answer. It starts from the top. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. I, I, I can appreciate that because I, I meet with leaders all the time that some of them are data driven. It's all about the data. Give me the numbers. I'll tell you what's wrong. I'll tell you how we fix it. And then I've also met with leaders and I probably err more on their side where they're more people driven. Where it's, let me talk to your people. Let me observe them. Let me watch them. And I can tell you how we can fix this, what we can fix, what we can do. But really, it's almost like what you guys have done is similar to the sales conversation where I feel like sales is a beautiful balance between art and science, where it's some art, it's some science. There's data that matters, but also at the end of the day, you've got to be able to connect and you've got to be able to deliver and you've got to be a man and or, and or a woman of your word or a person of your word where you do what you say you're going to do. And if you don't, you own it. You're accountable. People connect with that. They At the end of the day, you're not really working for these large corporations. You're working for the people of those companies. You're working in relationship with them. And so your ability to build that relationship to where they trust that if it couldn't be done, then it, then it, if you didn't do it, then it probably couldn't be done. Yeah, no, I think you're right on. I mean, I think the, the, the marriage of data and 
you know, the human capital, those two go completely hand in hand. And one is going to be indicative of the other. If you've got a breakdown on one side, it's going to, it's going to show up on the other side. If you've got data that shows you got a problem, it's probably because you have a personnel problem. And if you've got a person where you know you've got a problem with people, it's going to show up in the data. It's pretty hard for those things to contradict each other. If you have yeah. great people, you're not going to have data that says you're not getting the job done. And if you've got great data, you've either got great people doing it or you've got a lack, you've got something going on the integrity front where yeah. stuff's getting reported that shouldn't get reported. Yeah. But even that, that, that doesn't, that would be pretty short lived. That doesn't yeah. continue long term. It's too obvious. Yeah. So I don't know if you can hear my dogs barking in the background, but if you can, I apologize. <laughs> it's all right. It's the uh it's the spirit and the the atmosphere of working from home. Um so no, it's it's all good. Um <laughs> I, I can appreciate that. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. And I know that you've been with the company for a little over a decade. Obviously, you aren't the founding father of in nineteen forty seven when this company I mean I was in I wasn't even alive. You guys have been up and running for a long time, but can you speak to where the idea for this company, because it's really unique. I love the concept. I love the go-to-market and I see the need. I especially, I think it's probably pretty specific though. It's pretty niche. Either they have it or they don't have it, but do you have insight into the birthplace or the conception of driveline and kind of where that seed was planted originally and how you guys came about? The brand of Driveline and the name Driveline came about, I think it was like 2006, right? Okay. So at that point, we were owned or majority owned by a private equity firm. The history going back to the 40s and 50s is that there were, it started with one small regional company, basically okay. doing retail services, supporting brands and retail, doing wow. essentially the same thing. I can't speak to specifically how it may have differed, sure. but essentially providing the same type of services. And then over the years, um, through a series of seven different mergers and acquisitions, Driveline came to exist as Driveline. So it was taking companies that had specific regional expertise, taking companies that had certain category expertise, other companies that may have had inroads to certain Retailer, retailers or retail channels, and then piecing together what would be the perfect foundation for a national company like we are today to support a wide range of initiatives like we do. It wasn't necessarily conceived and then built from scratch, Yeah, right? It was, it was pieced together from, from seven different smaller companies. Got it. Um, and then growing well, from there. Since that happened, the company about doubled in size. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, so, that makes sense to me that, that it wasn't just like this small little seed that grew into this big tree. Let's talk about the pandemic a little bit, just because I think that, and I'm sure you've probably had this conversation ad infinitum, but I just want to touch on it because I feel like one of the biggest industries that was so impacted by COVID and the pandemic was the retail industry. Can you just speak to a high level of what your company saw, how you were impacted, how did you keep your head above water? Give us a little bit of insight on what that journey was like. Obviously, maybe you're still experiencing some of it, but what was that like for you guys? Knock on wood, and I guess as much as luck as anything, for us, it created more demand for our business rather than less demand. I know a huge portion of 
consumer sales went the crowdsourced delivery model with Amazon and everything else. Yeah. But for us, the type of retailers that we support and have supported over the years, again, knock on wood, luckily were considered um, what's the word I'm looking for? Essential. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so they were considered essential retailers. So because they were essential retailers, their demand spiked, right? Because if you think about the beginning, the beginning part of the pandemic and obviously started to equalize now, but as people were clamoring for essential items that could be gotten at essential retailers, our customer, our retail customers were seeing sales booming. If you're in the chain drug or the dollar store classic trade, they they just skyrocketed during the pandemic wow. because they had what consumers wanted and needed during the pandemic. And because they wanted and needed it, it those stores had to be maintained. So mm. the type of services we delivered became more in demand. We struggled and we're still recovering from the workforce side of that equation. The pandemic really created two things, right? It created this essential retailer kind of prioritization and where the, where the demand was coming from, but it also changed the whole workforce as far as, yeah. you know, from an hourly workforce, which is essentially what we are, the 14,000. Yeah. There, there was a lot of, I don't know, incentives is the right word, but there was a lot of opportunity for the U.S. hourly workforce to not be, let's say, be less aggressive and less attuned to meeting that demand of, of you know. Yeah, we, us, we started paying people not to work just as much as what they would make if they did work. Yeah, I'm trying to be politically what... correct. Yeah. You're right. No, I, mean, I don't we're care. Yeah. We're basically paying people to stay home. Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, we dropped from 14,000 to 11,000 people. And we're still working back to that number. We're not there yet. There's still incentives out there. And I shake my head. How can you know a population that makes up that workforce, how can they afford not to work? Especially even today with everything that's going on today with inflation and interest rates and everything's costing more. And yet there's still two jobs available for every person out there that's not working. And yet yeah. you've got millions and millions and millions of people that aren't working. It's just, it's a weird equation to get your head around. Yeah. At the end of the day, the pandemic treated us well. We treated our customers well. We were there for them when they needed it. And it did allow us to solidify some relationships, to grow some new ones and to grow the business somewhat. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. So when I was thinking about, when you were talking and you were giving these examples, I'm thinking about, those specific examples, but I'm not thinking as broad as I need to be. I'm thinking like, well, they're re-merchandising product lines or makeup lines, but that's not a set weight. That's in a CVS or that's in a Walgreens or that's in a Walmart. So you guys aren't doing this necessarily for like the Nordstrom's or the Macy's of the world. You're focused on more big retailers or large chains, high growth, fast moving consumer product goods, things like that. Exactly. That's our, that's our specialty. And that's where we reside as a business. I mean, the dollar channel for us is, is huge. 
our biggest retail customers, Dollar General. They've got wow. basically 20,000 stores across the U.S. We're visiting these stores every other week. Wow. So you think about dots on a map. Um, yeah. I mean, we got this country blanketed. But yeah, that's a lot. that foundation that allows us to support a much broader range of customers. Because, you know, some of our competitors have a dedicated approach to how they manage business, right? Some of our larger competitors, they might claim to have 20,000 associates out there across the country, but they may have 15,000 dedicated to two customers and they don't do anything else. We've got 14,000 associates, but they handle all our customers. Got it. So it's a different approach, but that relationship that we've grown and nurtured over the years with Dollar General and that channel has, it's been great. It's been reciprocal. We've helped them grow. They've helped us grow. We've developed new business solutions for them that we've been able to apply globally for us, but it's allowed us to grow into other, other channels of retail, but we never really strayed too far from grocery, the value channel, the chain drug channel, the grocery channel. Those are the three big ones or the four big ones. And then you got some specialty channels like the pet channel and things like that. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. It almost made you guys pandemic proof in a way. It though another question I have for you. So in we're talking, you guys have been in business for what is it, six decades, basically. Was it eight, yeah. eight, eight decades, yeah, seven, like eight seven, decades? It's yeah, it's a lot a long time. I can only imagine, you know, what that uh evolution is like in terms of acquiring business. How do you guys find customers? Like, what do you do? What are your strategies around? acquiring business. I can only imagine that also there's only so many retailers in the world, especially the types of customers that you're talking about that are going to have a need, the ones that are high growth. And so how do you, what does that strategy look like? Well, it is really competitive because of that, right? You said it. there's only a finite number of, we'll call it large scale, large number of door accounts out there across the U.S. And when you're a scale-based company like we are, that's really where our core that's our target market, right? It's retailers with 400, 500 outlets or more, thousands of outlets. It's retailers that have an aggressive, you know, new store remodel program and things like that, because it doesn't make sense to do programs that don't meet a certain threshold because inevitably they fall to the bottom of the priority list and somebody's going to suffer. Right. And at some point it's got to cross over that line from distraction being a strategic value. So it shrinks the target acquisition of, you know, business acquisitions even more, right? So how do you, you're constantly, it's almost like you're hitting the restart button every three years, right? Because even for us, I mean, nothing's forever. These retailers go out to RFP. They, if they've got a uh, intensive program where they engage with a third party like driveline, you may have a great program today, but two, three years from now, they're going to RFP and they're inviting your competitors in to come in and demonstrate why they're a better option or what they yeah, can Was it faster. something I said, baby, what's yeah. wrong? Yeah, better, faster, cheaper. So you're always in not defensive, but I would say offensive mode, both with current clients, because you're still winning that business every day that you've got it. But and then for new opportunities, you're taking that same attitude. So how do you find what's out there? Again, because for us, it's a pretty finite equation, right? We've got, I've only got one other counterpart than me for the most part that is out there looking 
knocking on doors looking for new business. But it's pretty traditional. I've been in the business a long time. My colleague's been in the business a long time. So we leverage those relationships that we've got. We ask for word of mouth recommendations. We are being introduced to new customers by existing customers, which what better way to grow the business. But you are a lot of times doing outbound, just outbound some research to see, are we a good fit? So you have to have those initial calls to determine. You don't always know if you're a good fit, right? Yeah. I know what we can do. I don't know how a particular retailer, even a sizable one, may engage with third party. Where do our solutions fit with their needs? Or maybe it's a need they haven't even thought of yet. You leverage all your traditional methods that you Got email, trade shows and things of that nature. But now, of course, we engaged with you guys with Belkin. So that's, it's been, it's been successful so far. So we're really pleased with some of the things that have developed from that because outside agencies like Belkin can really have a level of outreach from, even from an email campaign that we don't have, you would, we wouldn't have time for or we don't have time to yeah. do the research and we don't have time to send the type of emails and the follow-up. So it's great to kind of have a, call it a dedicated call center, if you will, right? To be doing that research and doing some of that initial legwork on the prospecting, bringing qualified leads to our door where we can then kind of step in and hopefully finalize that, that value, that final value proposition with with a new prospect and get over the fence with them. Um, with us, a handful of big wins a year is really what we're looking for. That's what we're satisfied with. I would rather have one $10 million customer than 10 $1 million. It's just the dynamics of it work better for the company and for us in our role in business development. So doesn't it... In terms of that, so I've always had an interesting opinion on this. I feel like when you have one $10 million customer, then it hurts you much more than if you have 10 $1 million customers and you lose one. If you have 10 $1 million customers and you lose one, you still got nine that are driving nine million. Whereas if you've got a $10 million customer, you've got all your eggs in their basket. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, you got to have a pretty balanced portfolio, right, of, of clients, to your point, you don't want to lay your eggs in one basket. It's dangerous. If you have one customer that's 80% of your business and through any number of circumstances, that customer goes away, you're a different company than you are. Yeah. So yeah, I think you do need a healthy, just a healthy blend of different sized customers. Um, so a $10 million versus a $1 million customer, I still like a $10 million customer as long as I've got 20 of them. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right? okay. But I, you know, so how many pieces of the pie do you need? At some point, you become, you lose some of that effectiveness and efficiency if you've got 100 customers that make up your business versus 50, let's say, doing the same cumulative volume. So it, it's not a black and white line in the sand, right? It's how do you decide what you're going to go after? Or is it worth going after? And sometimes these large scale customers take time. You may start. I have a great customer I'm working with right now that if I do a million dollars with them in year one, that's about all I'm going to do. But I think by year three, I could probably do 5 million with this customer. 
and potentially more from there. So you have to at least have faith or enough information to determine what is the strategic value of a smaller customer two years down the road. If it's a customer that's, if it's a retailer and they've got three stores and they're going to open one a year for the next five years, probably not a good fit for us. Yeah. If it's, if it's a brand that is a new brand on the market, you mentioned a brand earlier that you saw on Shark Tank. Oh yeah, Scrub Daddy. Scrub Daddy. So, right. So if Scrub Daddy came to us and said, look, we're rolling out into Whole Foods, let's say, 400 stores, or Costco, they've got you know, less than a thousand stores. And we really want to ensure the success of our business. So we want to engage guideline. We want you to visit these stores once a month and just ensure that our product is presented properly on the fixture, that the signs are there, that it's priced right. We want you to go to the back room and if there's any excess stock, we want that. We want you to report back to us on presentation and pricing and any cannibalization from competitive products and whatnot. So they may engage us to do that. If they were only ever going to be in 600 stores for us, it, it wouldn't make sense. It's just, we're not the right fit. But yeah. if I saw this product as, wow, you know what? I could see this product being in a hundred thousand stores in a year from now. Then you want to get in on the ground level. So some, all of that comes into consideration. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's important from a customer acquisition perspective to be able to see the vision and to have that foresight and to try to analyze as much as you can, what's going to be a winner and partnering with them at the right level early on as much as you can, because you can grow together and we can celebrate together as that growth starts to happen. I know we're getting to the top of the time, but what's next for a driveline? What's next for you guys? What are your plans, thoughts around the next three years, the next five years? <laughs> I wish I could be, I wish I could be specific with you, but uh, I mean, we're, we're, we seem to be getting more technology focused, both to drive our business, but also as a solution that is available to both retail and brand customers, where we can bring some new solutions that are evolving in the tech space at retail to really reduce out of stocks, increase accuracy of what's on the shelf and gain mm -hmm. market share out in the retail marketplace. So that's, you know, how can we do, how can we best do that, which in turn allows us to grow our business and technology is a big piece of that. Got so it. utilizing technology to grow that business, but leveraging the space we have and just keep fine tuning our infrastructure and our go-to market strategies. But if I had to pick one top thing, it's probably technology that's going to allow us to grow. Awesome. Well, listen, hey, I just want to say thank you. And if you've been listening, your time is the only thing that we can't get back. And so thanks for spending it with me. Also, please, they're in my ear telling me that I need to ask for likes and subscriptions on our podcast. If you've enjoyed the content, please engage, comment, like, subscribe. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great to meet you. I really appreciate it. And, and I wish you all the best. Uh, thanks so much, Brian. Appreciate it. It's good meeting you. you. Got it. Absolutely. Bye.